Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash and trying to understand the world while I do so. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. Now, my guest today is one of my personal favorites. His name is George Friedman. He's an internationally recognized geopolitical forecaster and strategist on international affairs and the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures. Now, he's a New York Times bestselling author, a few times over, and his most recent book, The Storm Before the Calm, which was published in 2020, outlines where we are at in the American cycle, but really describes what we are living through today, three years later. Now, what George does exceptionally well is step back from the noise and the headlines and get to the big macro trends that really dictate the future of our life, even to the extent of largely discounting the significance of any uh, one standing US president, saying that by the time they get to the office, the choices in front of them are so few and already decided by the time in which they entered in the cycle that we put way too much credit and, and emphasis on the individuals. Their decisions are largely already made for them. And their ability to change the course of history is actually quite limited. Always fascinating chatting with George. We covered a ton of ground, started internally with the United States, migrated to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the Middle East, and the South China Sea. Tons of ground to cover. Now, a lot of what George says does make people uncomfortable because he's very pragmatic in his approach to analysis. He separates himself from the you know emotional investment in outcome and just says, here's how the world tends to work, even discussing the necessity of war, which largely people don't want to hear. And I don't want to hear. I would love to see us, you know, de-escalate or defund the United States military industrial complex. But George brings to light why that's just never been a possibility. It never has been in any previous empire, and it's probably never going to be. So although it makes people uncomfortable, I do find him very pragmatic and realistic in his approach, and therefore very important to listen to. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. George Friedman. As always, before we jump in, I just have to shout out my newsletter, over 30,000 investors that hear from me every Sunday morning with my weekly essay where we jump into the psychology of decision-making, that which leads us to our best and worst decisions as investors, trying to understand the world, human nature, the supply of raw materials, and how to make money while focusing on those two things. So check out the link beneath this piece of content to subscribe to my weekly Sunday essay. Now here is George Friedman. Enjoy. All right, here I am with George Friedman. George, it's great to have you back on the program. I really appreciate you making the time. Pleasure. So here's where I want to start. I know right now you are completing and publishing your annual forecast. Um, yesterday, you sent me the 2024 United States forecast. I want to use this as a jump off point for this conversation. So let's start here. If you could summarize at a high level your 2024 United States forecast, and then I'll just pull on threads and follow my curiosity from there. Well, according to our model, there changes, economic changes every 50 years or so uh, in that election. And that election will not be this year, even though it looks hellish. Uh, it'll be the following year. We see a great deal of stability in the system this year. Um, the kinds of things we compare it to is the 1970s. In the 1970s, you had the 82nd Airborne attacking uh, Detroit's, putting down uh, snipers, 
Uh, you had tremendous discussions about sex and the question of whether or not you had premarital sex. Believe me or not, that was a major issue, and votes were taken. Um, you had a feeling, a tremendous problem economically with very high un unemployment, very high inflation, uh, tremendous instability in the economy, and the belief after Richard Nixon uh, decided to go abandon the gold standard and freeze all raises in income or prices, uh, a sense that the country was coming to pieces. And so very similar to the mood we're having now. And our forecast essentially is that those things are illusional. The country was not coming apart, did not come apart. And we measure this period against the 70s. And we find that by most variables, this is not nearly as bad as the 70s were. Hmm. We don't have the oil embargo driving prices up. So from an economic point of view, we see traditional American rage uh, hmm. and everything else there, but we see a pretty stable outcome. Not a period of growth, but it's not, not a catastrophe. I love the term, if I heard it correctly, you just used, I think you said traditional American rage. Um, yes. Okay. I want to, I want to dive into that a little bit. So just to recap, you know, reflecting back, cause it's easy, you're right to look at, you know, the U S today and see what you might perceive as skyrocketing polarization, uh, an inability to conduct any kind of civil discourse. Every issue becomes massively divisive in the public. In addition, pretty substantial economic and financial trouble, uh, $32 trillion in federal debts, accumulating an additional $2 trillion each year with the deficit. None of this looks sustainable. And it's easy to look at this picture and say, you know, what happens next? There's, there's no way this can maintain. And so drawing the parallels to the 70s, because culturally we were as divided at that point as well. And I like that you brought that point up because we came back from that. You know, um, I had the former prime minister of Canada on my podcast last year, and I brought up a lot of this conversation with him. And I said, how do you come back from, from these kind of public divisions? And he said, he brought up exactly what you did. He said, well, look, Jay, I grew up in an era where political leaders were being assassinated. You know, things can get a lot worse. Um, and so you look at the world today and think it can't get any worse than this, but in fact, you know, I lived through it. So, so backing up though, could you define traditional American rage for me? The United States is formed through immigrants who were not welcomed, but essential. Uh, it was formed through uh, a movement westward engaging the Indians and so on. The founders created this country with the intention that nothing could be done by the government. They created a presidency that could not function unless Congress was with it. Uh, 50 governors and all these other institutions. The founders were terribly afraid of getting things done. They were terribly afraid of the wisdom of the politicians. So they created a system that would hold together by the citizens. And the citizens were different. And all through our history, the citizens 
both pulled together and ripped apart. And at the transition point, which is coming very soon, the rage between the sectors is great. Okay, Everybody hates all politicians. Don't worry about that. That's, that's normal. Uh, what is abnormal, but happens frequently, is the kind of social tensions that are building up. So Ronald Reagan was the last transitional president we had 50 years ago. Okay, uh, He came into a situation where the economy was shattered and where people really were angry at each other. I mean, it was a, a difficult period. And he was able to deal with it essentially by manipulating the tax system, by making uh, investment capital available, and also by a personality that could look at it. And no, nobody ever thought he'd riot or anything like that. He never attacked anybody viciously or anything like that. He just sat on top of it. So when we look at the various presidents we have, like Roosevelt, who also came in, into the Great Depression and soothed the country. Uh, that, that was the thing happening. Now, Great Depression, the rage between segments of the population was enormous. I mean, somebody had to be blamed, mm. and it was probably uh, the Catholics, the Jews, Blacks, whoever got available, okay? And it was an ethnic problem, and Roosevelt solved it. So what we get in this period is tremendous and People blaming other people for anything that might possibly be wrong. Mm -hmm. And a president comes in that does two things. He manipulates the tax code in whatever direction it has to go this time. And he also uh, does not attack his enemies. He refuses to be hostile. So it's not going to be Trump, God knows. It's not going to be Biden. Uh, but these are the kind of characteristics you look for in transition. So for anybody who is, and most people are expecting the 2024 election to be that tipping point, and yeah. I, you know, I hear it in every direction, what you're saying is not yet, not yet, maybe 2028, but 2024, we're going to go further down this path, but we're not at that breaking point yet. So could you, could you speak to those folks who are expecting 2024 to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? We are not yet at a breaking crisis, okay? Life still goes on. Uh, a sense of catastrophe has not yet broken out to most people, okay? But we also haven't really taken the economic crisis to its final point. When Roosevelt got erected, unemployment was extraordinary. The biggest problem in the country was people were hungry, literally. And he had to deal with that. Reagan had to deal with the credible stress that was created uh, by the Viet by, well, at one point by the Vietnam War, but also the stress that was created by an economy that was malfunctioning. Mm -hmm. The Japanese are taking over our auto industry. So these are all things. We're not quite there yet. So the way we model it is we take a look at every 50 years, what it looked like. And there's a pattern, okay? And we're coming into that pattern. And wh whoever the election of this president is going to be 
is what I call Jimmy Carter. Mm. Jimmy Carter had the misfortune to be elected as the last president of that cycle. And there was also Herbert Hoover, who was elected as. It's not a pretty good place to be. But this in this election, we get our vanilla president. The next president, and that next president is going to have to face everything we're, we're looking at. So when it gets serious enough, deep enough, then they can get consensus. While it's still not crushing everybody, you have divisions. By the time Reagan came in, everybody knew something was really seriously wrong. Mm. Uh, and so there was actually consensus about people would line up behind him. When Roosevelt came in, nobody could deny that something was absolutely wrong in the Great Depression. So that's what we're looking for, the situation to get worse. Until then, people have the freedom to be all over the place. So the the way you position, so a couple things here. So you mentioned Reagan and Roosevelt, both of whom are very revered in American history. And you might make the uh, side statement that largely that's because of where they entered in the cycle. Same thing for Jimmy Carter. You know, he was the most disliked from a polling standpoint, president in American history until Biden, I'm pretty sure. So I'd love to get your comments on that. But again, more a symptom of where he landed in the cycle than who the man was. Is that what I'm gathering? Yes, but also the beginning of both their terms, they were attacked viciously, particularly by the media. So, for example, Roosevelt was regarded widely as a playboy, unfit for this job, there only because he was a Roosevelt. Right. Um, Reagan was an idiot. Reagan was unable to focus on anything. Reagan um, was just a loser. How did we get him? So the answer was, in both those cases, they understood what they were doing. So they went silent. They, they just, well, we did had the Laffer curve, we fixed, the, but they what they did was not fight back. So unlike Biden, who has to hit back every time somebody comes at him, mm. another presence who was very similar to that, Carter, uh, they essentially ran the presidency at the early stages under heavy attack, but not hitting back. Interesting. Okay. I want to zoom out for a minute here, George, and look at the larger American empire cycle with you, because I find that in, in macroeconomics and in macro finance, it's very easy to paint a pessimistic outlook for the United States using quantifiable data, right? Like we mentioned the debt and the deficits and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and when you look at history, so let's maybe walk through the last 600 years of, of empires, right? We can see maybe five empires squeezed into 600 years with the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch, the British Empire. Today, we're living through the American Empire. You maybe even want to squeeze the French in there for a minute. That's a pretty compressed rotation of power. So following that thread, where would you claim the American empire to be in, in have we entered the sunset years yet, or are we still, where do we land? Well, the weakness of economic analysis is that it rarely takes into account war. Hmm. Wars are the normal process of these great powers. Britain was constantly at war. 
Portugal was at war, Rome was at war. You do not have the position of the United States dominating the two oceans, that's the important thing, mm-hmm. without being challenged. And wars can have different economic effects, but as World War II showed, it is a tremendous booster to the economy. We were in a depression. World War II had a huge amount of borrowing, bonds being sold. Um, the borrowing drove the drives of the auto industry, of the suburbs, of everything else. So in economics, and this is not universally true, there is not an understanding of the various dimensions of war. And when we sit and talk about great empires in Ukraine or something like this, okay, we have to understand that's that's the price of empire. If you have an imperial position and the United States dominates both oceans, which is extraordinary, okay, you will be engaged in wars. And those wars have an economic impact. If you lose, they're usually a bad one. If you win, they tend to be stimulating. Mm-hmm. And that's not always true. It's very complicated. But economists tend to see that as an anomaly, so some oddity from outside. Whereas I look at it as United States is a great power. It's going to spend a good deal of the time in war and near war circumstances, as in Vietnam or Korea or going forward in Cold War. So the expectation that the war is kind of unneeded, well, it may not be unneeded economically, it is needed militarily, and then militarily, it should shoot back the economy. We had such a boom after World War II, it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So for critics of the military industrial complex who would say this is draining, you know, a trillion dollars a year, we've got 800 military bases scattered around the world. We're spread too thin. Um, We need to scale this back. We need to somehow defund the United States military industrial complex. What would the consequence of that be? Because it's an easy thing to say, and it gets said often, but often people don't think through, you know, second and third order effects of decisions. And so, you know, what are those? If the United States were to actually take radical action and unravel, um, unravel its military competency? Well, the United States is the only major power in the world that cannot be invaded by land. North of us is Canada. and We irritate them, but they won't attack. South of us is Mexico. The only threat to the United States comes from the sea. World War II, it was Atlantic. Pearl Harbor in the Pacific. The United States at this point controls both oceans. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we may choose to go to war, but we are never forced to go to war. And that has a different effect on the economy, if you will. Not that the generals are sitting there thinking about the economy, I hope. Uh, but what happens is that we enter into wars that are of strategic interest to the United States. And also think of the war in terms of, if you will, money. So we went into war with Japan. Then we rebuilt Japan. Then Japan became, so it, it's, it's a different way. We have things we can do that other countries can't. So where Russia cannot afford uh, 
the kinds of wars, length of wars that the United States can engage in, the United States actually makes can make money out of it. Doesn't have to, maybe. But what we can do is ultimately conquer Western Europe, believe it or not. All of Western Europe. Western Europe turns into an extraordinarily productive area. The United States has a advantageous position within that. So as you conquer areas, you also have the opportunity to take benefits. The great boom of the Eisenhower era would not have taken place without World War II. We were in a great depression. We didn't know how to get out of it. Oddly enough, the war caused us to borrow money, build plants, build an entire, and then conquer Japan, for example. So the way you have to look at it, I think, is that a nation state is far more than its economy. It is linked to the military and other social forces. And these interact in interesting ways so that an econometric view of the consequence of a war will likely not be right. Or a military view of the consequence of war is likely not going to be right. You have to put it together into a systematic whole. So for thank you for that. And so and I like the 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 contrast of United States can choose to go to war, but due to its geographic fortifications is never forced to go to war. Um unless maybe by public opinion, you know, to earn votes, you know, you fund wars to secure your place in politics, which maybe we, we do see that. You know, so let's let's walk through a couple of the global conflicts that are catching headlines today then. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the American motivation of involvement in each and maybe the consequence of American withdrawal. So starting with the Russia-Ukraine conflicts, what's the key motivation for the United States to be funding Ukraine? And what would the consequence be if they chose not to do so any longer? And will they? I guess that's a question that's being asked right now is they may, is that slowing down? But what do you think? Start with why Russia went to war. Russia went to war because NATO was afraid that NATO would be very close. So historically, um, Russia survived because of strategic depth. It's strategic long, depth. Depth. It was a depth. long way for Napoleon to go. It was a yep. long way for Hitler to go, and that's why they won. After Ukraine broke with them, they are now about 300 miles away from Moscow with hostile forces. Mm-hmm. The Russians had to attack. They had to find some way to push back what I call the enemy with a threat. From the American point of view, if the Ukrainians had won, they would be right up to Bay NATO again. Poland would be there on the border. Um, Slovakia, Hungary. Uh, Romania, we would be back in the Cold War. Now, if you go back and take a look at how much the Cold War cost us, mm. that was expensive. So the issue always is to ask, okay, if we don't do this, what happens? And the answer is, well, we don't care about Ukraine. What difference does it make? The issue is, what's the next step? Mm. The potential next step from the Russian point of view, they're trying to protect their capital from a traditional attack route. From the American point of view, if they give in, they're back in the Cold War 
which was by far the most expensive war we had. It uh, really cost a lot of money to deploy those forces. So the people who are saying that we don't really need Ukraine probably aren't wrong. But they're missing what's the next step. Or what is the potential step that we have to prevent happening now? And this is why, now, I'm always wondering, because I know there are people in the Pentagon who understand this. I'm always wondering if the president understands this is the reason and can explain it. I'm not sure. Hmm. So this is a sort of thing that hmm. is understood. It's in, in the DNA of the Pentagon. Keep the Russians at a distance. But the Russians had to attack us. We could predict that. We did predict that. They, there was no way that they wouldn't do it. So once again, what you get into is the second and third order effects of us doing or not doing something. And often the conversation in mainstream media never gets that far, right? It's like we cover the first order impact. Um, and, you know, so you mentioned the the strategic depth of Russia in, in terms of to invade Russia. You had to cover a lot of ground to get to Moscow. That's what prevented Napoleon from taking Moscow. That's what prevented Hitler from taking Moscow. Curious that, uh, you know, as I've understood, you know, Hitler's strategy during World War II, he seemed to have learned a lot from Napoleon, including that key mistake that you should not march on Moscow. And then he did it anyways. Uh, obviously, we know it, it didn't work out. He hit seasonality, wasn't able to move armory and had to pivot to take Stalingrad, which also did not work out in their favor. So from that standpoint, you know, and I, I feel I don't know what you think about this. So as a, as a North American, often I, I feel that we think about history in the context of our history, which is pretty short. It's a couple hundred years, right? Whereas if you're Russian, you're thinking a lot longer term in Russian history. And so you remember Napoleon, right? You remember the, uh, the risks, the real risks uh, of your geography within World War II. And so, so from Putin's perspective, his back may have already been against the wall. Uh, and he knew it was only a matter of time before the next Napoleon or the next Hitler arrives. And if that happens, you know, we don't have the strategic depth that's always kept Moscow safe. Correct? Absolutely correct. But remember one thing about wars. Uh, people think of wars as we have choices. If you're attacking Russia, there are only so many paths to move forward. And one of the paths, all of them have to get to Moscow. And one of the paths, well, the path goes through Stalingrad in the east. But the point is that people tend to look at wars as if the generals have choices. And just as I feel frequently politicians don't have choices, they're pushed, pushed into this. They're going to be fighting here. Um, it's going to be this war because this is the terrain. Now, the Americans had no intention of going to Moscow. But the Russians didn't know that. So mm. you, you assume the worst. But all of this, you know, affects the United States in the same way. We had Pearl Harbor. We're still living under the effects of Pearl Harbor, of being surprised, of being into a war without expecting it. The entire Cold War was built around nuclear weapons. And the nuclear weapons were constantly on alert because we couldn't take another Pearl Harbor. Mm. Even today, many times we look at Russia and say, is there a Pearl Harbor here? So the Russian automatic response is, how close are you going to get to Moscow? 
the American obsession is we must not be surprised. Mm. And that came to us from Pearl Harbor. So we also have, even though we're younger than that, obsessions. Would would 9-11 have renewed that fear? S similar scenario, being caught flat-footed by not knowing enough? It confirmed the fear. Okay? Mm. It simply took us to the point where it was not a surprise that we would hit, be hit uh, by them. It, everything about the military posture of the United States is built around the possibility of a hostile enemy showing up suddenly. And it's really important to understand that every nation has this kind of fear. Poland does, others do. But we have the fear of Pearl Harbor. And if you think about that fear, then the people who want to cut budgets are going directly in the face of the underlying fear of the United States. We don't, we're not going to be attacked. Oh, yeah, really? So right. that's the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the, the prisoner's dilemma, right? Are you familiar with the, uh, I mean, to massively simplify two people standing in front of each other. And if I don't swing first, he will, you know, that's, uh, kind of the, the lesson of, you know, built, built into human nature to a degree. Okay. So to, to, to back up just a little bit and, and summarize, you know, the consequence in the mindset of American decision makers of not supporting Ukraine is that we, you know, second and third impact effects end up in another cold war, which as you put it, was the most costly of American wars. Um, and I didn't know that that's really interesting. Uh, Moving on to the Middle East, same question, however, Israel-Hamas conflict, what is the American motivation to stay involved and what's the consequence if they don't? The administration is committed to saying nice things. In other words, it, it is carefully kept out of it from a military standpoint. Uh, we have some ships in the area and some interesting things happen in the Red Sea, but this is not the like Ukraine, we didn't get into the war. Hmm. We would like the biggest problem the administration has is global and American anger at Israel, whether justified or not. He has to kind of deflect it. On the other hand, he's under pressure from an old ally, Israel, who actually is important to the United States militarily, that he's got to keep them. So I don't envy the president trying to find the middle ground here. But the, the basic reality is this is not a war we've engaged in except for sending art artillery shells, 155 millimeter artillery shells, and some rockets and things like that, um, that they bought already from us and had to be delivered. And so, so there's a huge difference in the cost structure. But we also, the United States doesn't want to see um, the Islamic world unite. The interesting thing that everybody misses about the war is that most of the Muslim countries don't want Hamas to win. They, they're worried about Hamas and what it would do. So the Saudis are worried about them. The Lebanese are worried about them. Even the Iranians haven't moved an inch. So this is a very strange political war where the military aspect is less than less important than the incredible complexity. This is a region where everybody's betraying everybody else. 
So let me uh, let me just back up for a minute then. And and you mentioned the United States. It's impossible to invade the United States geographically, but maybe it's possible to invade the United States psychologically. And I bring that up because there's maybe two factors that we could look at sort of related to the, the war in the Middle East. One being that, you know, Qatar, for some reason, is the largest foreign donor to American universities. You know, little things like this make me cock an eyebrow. You know, you look at the essentially open border policy on the southern border and the mystery as to who's arriving and, and maybe why. You know, are these events as dramatic as we could paint them to be? Or are we making uh, mountains out of molehills here? What's your take? We've always been uncomfortable with foreign um, immigrants. You mentioned that earlier. Yeah, that was a good point. And when you take a look at that, this is a normal case. Uh, the Mexicans are coming in. I live here in Texas, and half the people think it's terrible, and the other half are hoping to hire them. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very complex situation. We have a demographic problem. Everybody knows that. We need immigrants to take low-end jobs. Just we'd prefer them to be English, preferably lords, but they're not going to come here and, and do this. This is what happens. However, the attempt to influence the United States uh, has always been there. The British tried to influence us during the revolution and beyond it. Um, during World War II, the Germans had a very strong propaganda system to try to keep the U.S. out of the war. The Russians absolutely tried to influence us everywhere they could, money. And so this goes on. We are the player that's going to decide the war. No price is too much to create a political movement to prevent it. Those movements were created. They just failed. So the interesting thing about these foreign paid or even the domestic we grown they never work. The United States has a very clear understanding, usually, of its strategic needs. Vietnam accepted. Uh, and it was understood by the Americans very well why we were in Ukraine. And I don't think the public opinion will get strong enough to do to, to damage to that. But yeah, everybody's here. Right. Gutter. I think they want to own Boston or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's good. Again, good context because you brought that up when we were talking about the 60s and you said, you know, or just the history of America. Immigrants were never welcome, but always essential, right? And it's kind of a, a thread, you know, that you could follow for, for a couple hundred years uh, in, in this country. So if, if you were to make some, form some kind of an outlook for the conclusion, how the conflicts in Israel, Palestine might conclude. Is that possible at this point? George, would you care to make any speculation about how this might end if if so? The Israelis have the capability of ending it at any time they want, if they want to take casualties and if they want to inflict heavy casualties. Okay. Now that Hamas is in a bad position at this point, the United States does not want a bloodbath in the region and the Israelis have to listen to the Americans to some extent. 
on this question. I think that stops the way they normally stop. There's the peace agreements when they're shattered. And everybody lives happily for 10, 15 years, and then they start it again. Uh, 1973, Israel was attacked by the uh, Egyptians and the Syrians. Complete intelligence failure. And I think this is the important thing to ask about this war. Israel is very, very proud of its intelligence cap capability. How do they miss Hamas's attack? And this is the second time. How in 1973 did they miss the Syrian and Egyptian attack? So the really important military question comes out of this. It's what's wrong with Israeli military intelligence. And so that's where the weakness comes up. They rely on knowing before an attack comes that it's coming because their troops are limited in that sense. And this is the second time in my lifetime that the Israelis blew it big time. And that's the conversation that's not being had. Uh, the conversation being had, what, what damage they're doing to Hamas. The real question is, if they had known they were coming, they could have stopped, punched them, and headed this off. How did that fail? Well, could you ask the same question about, you know, 9-11, where where you know the world's most advanced military with the most advanced technological competency you know satellite imagery like you know all this but we were um overwhelmed by box cutters you know the simplicity of that attack was why it succeeded is that true and then in the case of the hamas invasion similarly it was it was toy drones and uh and i can't you know um little windmill propellered um, parachutes. Like it was very primitive in the approach, which is maybe why it succeeded. And then, you know, is it just thinking about um, uh, 1973 and 2023 in Israel and then maybe 9-11 in the United States, could it just be as simple as sometimes intelligence failures happen? Or is there, or what are your thoughts? That's true. 9-11 uh, occurred because the enemy was brilliantly intelligent, very capable. They came into the United States to get training in aircraft. They were not detected. Huge amounts of money came in to them. They decided they were not going to buy airplanes. They hijacked airplanes of the same type, flying out of the same airfield, okay? The related airfields, Northeast and simultaneously hitting their targets. In other words, these were, these are pros. Hmm. And how they got there and who trained them and stuff is always very interesting. The problem of any intelligence service is they cannot protect against the outlier. They're very good at detecting the known threat. But the intelligence people have a list of what's threatening. And the enemy always has, okay, I've seen the list, we'll do one that's not happening. And that's what happened, which is that somewhere in the Arab world's relationship to the United States, Arab intelligence organizations figured out where our prior primary defenses are and built an operation or allocated it to evade it. 
So this is the other dimension of war. There is armor on armor, airstrikes and everything. And somewhere there is intelligence where you are trying to understand not only what your enemy is going to do, but how to use covert operations to dismantle your enemy. And that's what 9-11 was. I've written on this, and it's stunning to me, knowing a little about intelligence, uh, how good they were. Yeah, okay, so thank you for elaborating on that, because, you know, it's... uh pretty reductive for me to just say it was it was as simple as they showed up with box cutters obviously you know that that was not the case multi-year planning and training and infiltration and 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 you know under radar you know very interesting uh just to say one thing they yeah. live in the belly of the beast the united states without being detected for over two years mm-hmm. getting all this money getting everything and evading the attention of a very good intelligence service, FBI. That's how good they were. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's again, it begs the question, how, how, you know, because that's how good they were. Well, good. It's a competition, right? They were better in that moment, in that event. They were, they were not just good. They were better. They outsmarted United States intelligence for the course of two years. You know, it does make you cock an eyebrow, but I, you know, maybe it's maybe it's just as simple as, as you said, you you can never protect but against the outlier. Defense is always at a disadvantage. Defense is always at a disadvantage. Yeah, the attacker can choose. Yeah, the point of attack. Right, right. Defender has to be at. So the attacker is always in the advantage of being able to choose where to engage, unless he's detected before. So right. they're very careful not to detect, so they can choose where to to engage and you know it's a big country and the fbi is a very good organization but they really did not detect them because they came in they with a plan that was designed not to be detected it's uh yeah interesting comment it's it's always harder being on defense it reminded me of that IRA quote after an attempt on Margaret Thatcher's life. And I, I try to pull it up here real quick, but uh, you know, to summarize, you know, she has to be lucky every time. We just have to be lucky once. Okay. Now pivoting to uh, the third conflict, I just want to get your thoughts on is the, the rising tension in the South China Sea, the possibility of a departure from, you know, what's been strategic ambiguity with Taiwan to maybe um, something more definitive. And is that probable? You know, do you expect the tension in the South China Sea to escalate? What's the United States motivation if that occurs and 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 what happens? The Chinese have been crippled. One I've of the crippled. Crippled. Uh, one of the proofs of this is if they wanted to invade somebody, they should have. <laughs> you know, if that was their intention. They didn't. So here's the thing. China is a trading power. It must have access to the sea to trade. And its eastern coast is where every all the trading is, Shanghai and all these cities. China's tr- desperate fear is the United States is going to mine those ports, block them off, or set it up. Now, the United States did something about two months ago that scared the hell out of them. We got into a treaty with uh, the Philippines that gave us four, now five, 
land-based anti-ship bases. We also, at the same time, signed a treaty with um, New Guinea. No, that's not much of a place, but it is the southern exit. So at this point, the Chinese, from basically the Aleutian Islands all the way down to Australia, are blocked if the U.S. chooses to block them. And this is why I don't think, that's why I know they haven't gone to war. Because if they went to war, okay, they would lose access to the seas. Their economy is currently in very bad shape. Um, it is not the superpower it used to be economically. And they can't afford to engage the United States that way, which is why they, Xi came here. Uh, he wasn't talking about Taiwan. He doesn't care about Taiwan. He's looking about American investment mm. and purchasing goods. So I, I never believed that there was an opportunity for the Chinese to attack. I thought that the lads in the Pentagon sure made it sound that way. Budgets went up, but not being cynical on this, they they weren't going to do it. They They didn't do it, and they now are even worse. What's interesting about this, the Filipino move, which is very important, is hardly ever noted in the United States mm -hmm. that we pulled this off. And we can criticize Biden for many things, like getting up in the morning, but <laughs> he, he pulled that up. He pulled that off. He got the southern flank of the Chinese back to his world. Could, could you expand on exactly what Biden accomplished in the Philippines? If you look at the Philippines, okay, you, you, there's to the north of them, there's Taiwan, and that's pretty much locked in. The Philippines faced the entire southern part of China. And if you have land based anti ship missiles, they're a lot safer and more accurate than sending in your Navy. So going in against a you know, any sort of landing at Normandy or something like that is not something you want to try. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, they picked up the area south of them. So what we see here is, whereas they used to have it from Japan down to Taiwan, Taiwan is now in the middle of the American defense structure, and south of them have grown up these others. Uh, so, you know, there's always a lot of discussion about Chinese attempts. You have to figure out what they want. Please don't close my ports down. Uh -huh. and secondly, what forces they have to deploy. They've got sources. They've got forces that's not to be denied. But they're not moving because they don't want to. Interesting. Okay. You're right. And and that that was largely missed by media, the move in the Philippines. And you know, I just quite frankly wanted to look at a map as you were walking me through it just to give some color uh to the commentary but um uh yeah why why do you think just because you know media covers bullets and boots on the ground is, is that why you know if it, if it bleeds it leads but this is you know quiet strategy in the background is, is that why you don't see headlines cover these kind of maneuvers reporters today do not understand military affairs they cover wars, but they always use it to look at casualties, which are real. 
But explaining the intent of commanders is something they didn't do. I came out of World War II into the 1950s with brilliant guys. These have been combat all the time. Our military correspondents have not seen combat. They have not served usually in the military. And so you wind up in a situation that they don't understand exactly what, what, what has just happened. And that's one of the weaknesses of our press. So the last uh, item I'd love to cover off with you is, is pulling on the thread that China is crippled. Uh, comment comment you made and and this obviously goes flies right in the face of the assumption a lot of people are making that we are entering a new multipolar world right and um, the United States hegemony uh, will recede a little bit not to say this is the fall of the United States Empire or anything so dramatic or even um, of their reserve currency but that. There's going to be a more balanced outcome of power moving forward, led by the Chinese. Now you can look at demographic challenges and say how. Like demographics typically lead, and demographics are very unfavorable in China. Um, also, massive debt crises. You mentioned President Xi coming to San Francisco to meet with President Biden to essentially beg for investment because foreign direct investment has turned negative in in China uh, for for the first time in a couple decades. Um, which is very significant. So, so walk me through that concept a little bit deeper, if you don't mind, George. Think of this fact. Little noted, after Xi met with Biden, there was a second meeting downstairs with business heads. Yes. But Xi fully understood that Biden had nothing to give him. What he needed to talk to were people who were buying Chinese goods and more investing in China. They have a huge investment problem. Now, that investment problem is scary for the Chinese because historically they've had civil wars. Mao Zedong came to power in a hellacious civil war. The war almost inevitably involves two parts of China. The coastal part of China, which is usually well-to-do relatively, because they trade, and the interior. And the interior is very poor. And the interior rises up against it. Now, Mao Zedong took the long march that people talk about to these poor peasants, built an army, and conquered China. So you will see in China, this is happening, a lot of money being diverted to the interior poor away from tech. When they talk about cutting back on tech, that's what they're cutting back for. Mm. Chinese fear is that the interior will destabilize. So what they're looking at as their basic question is, how can I maintain my economy growing and keep the West stabilized? And the answer historically is you can't. So from their point of view, when they look back on their history, they look at the fact that civil war is common. And Xi is really afraid of that. And you'll see them send ministers there and then throw them out and try somehow to find that being hungry shouldn't be a problem. But every time they do that, 
they hit the tech companies. And therefore, the American tech companies are not going to play because they don't have a guarantee about the Chinese government covering funding of their part. So you're seeing this sort of instability there due by this. Interesting. I mean, that and that, that second meeting, as you put it, kind of reminds me, to be honest, of, you know, a lot of the work I do, I, I help startups raise money. That's sort of an, another part of my business. And what's involved with that is getting a bunch of investors in a room, getting the CEO to the podium, letting them pitch their case and see if we can get some interest, you know, and you look at the attendee list of that dinner and it's, you know, it's Tim Cook, uh, Elon Musk, you know, Salesforce, Boeing, I'm just looking at the list here, Pfizer, MasterCard, BlackRock, FedEx, Visa, like you name it, right? It's it's the list. And a lot of media coverage was very unfavorable uh, during that dinner. I remember that, that media asking questions, you know, what are all these American titans doing paying homage to the Chinese presidents? And what you're saying is, no, you got it backwards. They weren't there paying homage to the Chinese president. They were there to hear a pitch. And, um, and, they and were looking, they, this was a bargain. This is bargain time. They need it. Go and get it. Question politically, can you maintain your regime so that we're not reversed? There is the question that you're asking. Mm -hmm. And they haven't come in that they're not confident that China can, but as to uh, a power that's overtaking the United States, not likely. I, I have to ask one more question. I, I know I said that would be the last one, but just because I got you here. Uh, I, I find it so important to understand the intrinsic motivations of a nation. And, and as we walk through what's behind a lot of American motivation, it's it's the fear of being surprised again, right? Because it's happened in the past. And this is this is a core motivator. In, in Russia, it's, it's the geographic depth and the fear of losing that. And the consequence of that is just as impactful. Um, you walked walked us through China's internal motivation here. I just could you do that one more time for me with that with that context? What is the internal motivator? You know, fear in, in the mind of President Xi and, and the Chinese. China's fear is not an attack for the United States or anything like that. It was civil war. It's civil war. That the poor part of China will rise up against the wealthier part. China has enough real money to. Uh, do one or the other, invest in the tech companies or in the, in the West. And the trouble, if you see, you see people being arrested periodically in China, in the newspapers, things like that. It's all about this. This is the historic Chinese crisis. This is the Chinese historical problem. They get wealthy at the coast, poor in the interior, and there's a fight. And the Chinese are trying desperately to head off that fight. Okay, thank thank you for that, and uh, and I, I appreciate. It. Look, I could I could chat to you for another four hours, George, and just keep keep pulling things out. <laughs> I'll, I'll make things up. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I I really do sincerely appreciate your time, though, coming back on the show and chatting with me and and, and walking through a lot of these uh, concepts. Um, I look forward to your 2024 report. I know you're publishing, I believe, weekly right now for your subscribers, new region every Friday, but um, I'll put a link 
uh, in our show notes for anybody who wants to check that out, get on the subscriber list. I strongly encourage it. Um, everybody loves to talk about geopolitics. Very few people actually understand what's going on. Arm yourself with the best resource in the business. Um, and that's that's Mr. George Friedman. So I really appreciate your time very much and I'd uh, love to do it again sometime. Good. I do too. All right. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.